right, if you'll uh, take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 17. We come in our study of the covenant to the covenant made with Abraham. start reading in verse 1. This is the reading of God's Word. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, and El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You'll be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall, your name shall be called Abraham. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed or descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an eternal possession, and I will be their God." God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your seed after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not your uh, of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus you shall thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Let's pray together. Father, we do come into your presence again this morning. We thank you for this Lord's Day. We pray that in every place throughout this world, where people call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in truth, that you would be mightily present, that you would be mighty to save sinners, that you would be mighty to sanctify your people and to expand your glorious kingdom. And Father, we thank you for this gathering this morning. We thank you for the great songs that we have sung together that celebrate your love and your kindness to us. Father, what a comfort it is to know that you shall hold us fast. Father, we thank you that those whom you have set your affection upon, you keep them all the way to the end. 
Father, we now pray that you would give us understanding in your word. We pray that you would prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. And Father, we pray that you would enlarge our hearts with affection for all that Christ has done for us. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. So we live in the high desert. So it's, it's pretty, but it still is, is desert. We're about 5,000 feet elevation. Don't ask me to convert that to meters because I have no idea. All right. But uh, at the south end of town, there are fairgrounds. And these fairgrounds um, are used oftentimes for um, uh, the rodeo or other horse-type events. But every once in a while, they pop up uh, a carnival or an amusement park. Right? So I want you to imagine, I have a little five-year-old grandson, Calvin, Calvin Owen. You know, <laughs> you know you raised your kid right when they say, Dad, his name's Calvin Owen. All right? So imagine I have Calvin with me, and we're driving down uh, Pine Nut Road, which is the road that the, the fairgrounds are on, and, and we see people setting things up. We see them putting up a, a merry-go-round and a Ferris wheel, and we see them doing all kinds of things in preparation for this amusement park. And, and, and I say to Calvin, I'm going to take you to that amusement park someday. And Calvin says, really, Papa? Well, can we go and see it now? Well, it's not quite done, but we'll go. And we, we start walking around, and, and we notice that, um, you know, that the, um, <laughs> the uh, horse apples are still on the ground, and the smell of uh, corn dogs and, and stale popcorn are left over from the last carnival. And as we're walking around, Calvin says to me, this is great. I can't wait to come to this amusement park. So time goes on, and we drive by the fairgrounds from time to time, and every time there's this sense of anticipation. Papa, I can't wait for you to take me to this amusement park. And then the day comes, and I pick him up at his house, and I say, come on, we're going on a trip. And we start heading down the highway, and and he begins to realize we're finally going to the amusement park. And then we keep driving past Pine Nut Road. And he says, Papa, hold on a second, you just passed it. And I say, be patient. And we keep driving. And we keep driving. And there's a little bit of disappointment, and that disappointment's growing, and, and he says, where are we going? I thought we were going to go to the amusement park. And I say, be patient. And hour after hour of driving, we finally get down. If you've ever driven down Highway 395, you know there's these little scary towns called Red Mountain and Johannesburg. And if any of you are from there, I apologize uh, for the description. But they are almost ghost towns. And... We get down to about Red Mountain, and Calvin's looking around, and he's like, this is awful. Maybe we should just turn around. And I say, do you really want me to turn around? Because we're almost where we're going. Keep driving, Papa. And so then, as that disappointment is still there, there's also this sense of anticipation that something else is going to happen. 
And instead of pulling into the, the dusty fairgrounds where the sand blows in your eyes, instead we, we pull up in front of Disneyland. <laughs> With the perfectly manicured lawns and the flowers and the top-notch rides and the gourmet food. And here's, here's the question I want to ask you. So, did I keep my promise to Calvin? When I told him I would take him to a dusty, broken-down amusement park and instead took him to Disneyland, did I keep my promise? I most certainly did keep my promise if you understand that to give more than what was promised is to keep the promise. Okay? And this is, this is really what the covenant with Abraham is all about. God walks Abram through this land and this, this covenant with Abraham, of course, is, is progressively revealed. It is initially given as a promise in Genesis 3, or Genesis 12, 1 through 3. There's the promise of a land, there's a promise of a nation, and the promise of a blessing to the world. And then in chapter 13, God repeats the, and these are the two basic promises, land promise and seed promise, that is descendants. And these promises are given to an old man who is, who is unable to have children, and he's married to an old woman who's unable to have children. And then in Genesis chapter 15, that promise is formalized in a covenant. And you might remember what happens in Genesis chapter 15. And so there's Abram, and, and he's ready and willing to actually offer up his servant, who would have been like an adopted son. Lord, maybe, maybe it is, it is uh, Abimelech who is supposed to be the, um, the, the chosen one, and God says, no, he's going to come from your own body. And then he puts Abram into a deep sleep, and after Abram, of course, had gone through a ritual, covenant ritual, of cutting animals into, laying them apart. This, this by the way, was often called a, a covenant or an oath of malediction. And that is you would take animals, slice them in two. For those of you who are queasy and don't like to hunt, just la 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 this part. Chop the animals in half and then you would walk hand in hand with the other person. And you would walk through those cut, uh, split animals and basically what you were saying is if I break my vow, my covenant to you, may ha what happened to these animals happen to me. God puts Abram in a deep sleep and passes between the animals by himself. Demonstrating God's, God's graciousness and God's, as it were, unilateral commitment to keep these promises to Abraham. And then... The, the seed promise is repeated, and the land promise is repeated. And then we get to Genesis chapter 17. And in Gen Genesis 17, in a sense, what happens is that the covenant that had been formalized in chapter 15 is now set in motion. Seed promise is reiterated, land promise is reiterated, and then the sign of the covenant is given. And the sign of the covenant is circumcision. In Genesis 18, uh, God actually tells Abraham that he is going to have a son from his body and from Sarah's body one year, 
from that time. And then, of course, in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham's obedience is put to the test. He takes Isaac up to Mount Moriah and is ready to offer him as a burnt sacrifice. He obeys. God spares him, provides the ram in the place of his son. Beautiful, glorious picture of the gospel, by the way. And then what God does for Abraham in Genesis 22 is God reiterates the seed promise and that that seed would be a blessing to all of the earth. That, in, in a very brief nutshell, is the covenant made with Abraham. Now, understanding this covenant is incredibly important. Because as we talked about uh, uh, last night, or yesterday, the, uh, the idea it often is that if you have really um, uh, straight lines of continuity, then baptism replaces circumcision, and if Abraham circumcised his children, then believers should baptize their children. But I want to suggest to you that we should understand this covenant with Abraham in, 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 in a different way. I would argue that, that there are three parts to the Abrahamic covenant that are absolutely crucial. The land promise, the seed promise, and then the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. I would also argue that, that you have to understand that there is a, a dual nature to the covenant made with Abraham. Now let me, just, let me just flesh this out for us. Let's talk first of all about the seed promise. So the seed of Abraham has, first of all, immediate reference to the biological son of Abraham and Sarah, that is namely Isaac. All right? And so that was the, the immediate reference to the promise. God was going to give Abraham a son. Now even that ends up being pretty interesting because it is not just purely um, a physical or biological aspect which makes Isaac the seed of Abraham. Ishmael proves that. Ishmael is actually a physical son of Abraham, and yet there is something that, that makes Isaac unique. Isaac is the son of the promise, whereas Ishmael is, is not. And by the way, the thing that makes the difference is an election according to grace, which is Paul's point in the first part of Romans chapter 9. So we have the seed of Abraham, which is obviously Isaac, but then we have the seed of Abraham being a reference to, as it were, a more distant seed. That is, his descendants that would come through Isaac and then through Jacob. And so this, this biological or physical aspect of the promise would relate to the natural offspring who would then constitute the nation Israel. So the sons of Jacob, the twelve tribes of Israel, would end up being the seed of Abraham. And of course, as they multiply, uh, not only in the land of Canaan and then uh, the land of Goshen, but then also in the land of Egypt, uh, that uh, multiplication is God fulfilling His word to Abraham. But here's the thing. If you just look at the seed promise, just in terms of physical descent from Abraham, you end up missing something that is, that is really amazing, and that is that the seed promise doesn't just uh, come to an old man who is uh, past the age of procreation along with his wife, but that seed promise actually is, um, goes back to Genesis 
God is saying to Abraham is not something brand new out of the blue. What God is doing is He's narrowing that promise of Genesis 3.15. So the seed of the woman now becomes further identified as the seed of Abraham. And so that means that the development of this theme ends up being uh, something bigger than just Abraham. You're going to have lots and lots of descendants. And so I would say that the fulfillment of the promise that Abraham would have seed is actually fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Yes, it's fulfilled in the multiplication of, of Abraham's physical descendants in the nation of Israel, but it is supra-fulfilled, that is, fulfilled beyond that in the person of Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed the very opening words of the New Testament? These opening words go like this. This is the book of Geneseos, which comes from the Greek term Genesis. This is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. When the, when the New Testament opens up with the Gospel of Matthew, it does, it does three things that if you, if, if you read the Old Testament, oh, please read your Old Testament, right? Don't just say, oh, I don't understand that. Too much blood for me. Too many livers and organs and stuff. Um, too much, uh, you know, killing Canaanites. Read your Old Testament. The reason is, is because when you get to the New Testament, this is the way it works. Anybody here, um, I realize I'm in a different country altogether, but did you guys ever have that game show, Name That Tune? Yes. Okay, so, so you remember how that went, right? Somebody would say, I can name that tune in three notes. Right? Now, for some of you who are old enough, you'll have songs that all you need to hear, like, all you need to hear is the first three uh, uh, notes of Smoke on the Water, and you know it's Smoke on the Water, right? And some of you are like, what is he even talking about? Okay, how, Amazing Grace, for those of you who are more sanctified, Amazing Grace. Uh, but you just, all you need to hear is just, and then what happens when you hear those notes? What happens is the whole song comes back. Yeah. Right? That's what happens. That's why uh, you can listen to a song, or not listen to a song for 20 years, and all of a sudden it comes back on the radio, and you hear it, and you're singing along. Why? Because those notes have something that connects to the whole picture. This is what the New Testament does repeatedly. It plays two or three notes from the Old Testament, and what it wants you to do is look back to the whole song. You have three really simple notes in Matthew 1.1. The book of the generations of, which by the way, is exactly the way the Septuagint translates Genesis 5.1. Okay? So the book of beginning, the book of the generations, the book of the origin of Jesus Christ, and then here's the, 
here's the, the second, second note. Son of David. Davidic covenant. Promised that one of David's descendants would be seated upon his throne. And then seed of Abraham. Not just saying that he's a descendant of Abraham and has Abraham's DNA, but as it were, the very fulfillment of the promises made to David and the very fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. And so Jesus Christ is, in fact, the fulfillment. And our brother read it this morning in Galatians chapter 3. Paul makes a really strange point in, in Galatians 3, 16. He says, now notice he doesn't say seeds or offsprings, plural, but seed, and the seed is Jesus Christ. So, now I would say Abraham sort of had a, a, this inkling that as he drove past Pine Nut Road, something bigger was in store. Alright? Why do I think that? Because Jesus could say in John 8, 56... Abraham saw, uh, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, right? So there was a sense in which he had an anticipation of, of Messiah, but, but here's the reality, is that the seed promise given to Abraham was supra-fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. But then there is further fulfillment, and this further fulfillment actually goes right back to the initial promise of Genesis chapter 12, because the seed of Abraham then become those who are in union with the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. This, by the way, is Paul's point in Galatians 3, especially verses 6 through 9, and then again at the end of the chapter, and that is, if Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham, it is those who have faith, like Abraham the believer, that are the children of Abraham. And so believers, those who put their faith in Christ, these are the seed of Abraham. Now if that's the case, guess what happens? So those who come to faith in Jesus are now the descendants of Abraham because of faith. And now Abraham's promise, you shall have descendants that, that, that are more than the stars in the heavens or the sand on the sea, is supra-fulfilled. Right? So, there's much more we could say about that, but Abraham's the father of those who have faith in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, and the ultimate fulfillment was that in Abraham's seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed, and God has fulfilled that in a way that went beyond anything Abraham could have possibly imagined. But what about circumcision? Circumcision is... Um, it's a very cutting subject. <laughs> and I, I should stop right there. Um, <laughs> Abraham received circumcision in Genesis 17. Romans 4, 9 to 12 tells us that Abraham received circumcision after already believing. Right? So Abraham's circumcision 
was a sign or seal of a righteousness which he already possessed. Okay? So Abraham's circumcision was unique to Abraham. Uh, so, by the way, um, circumcision is not just in and of itself the sign and seal of righteousness or the sign and seal of faith to everybody it was administered to because Ishmael was circumcised as well. Okay? So the physical descendants of Abraham after Genesis 17 or at Genesis 17 were required to be circumcised on the eighth day. And so just like the, the rainbow was the sign of the covenant with Noah, so circumcision would be the sign of the covenant with Abraham. And in fact, the idea was is that failure to administer the sign was a major problem. And in fact, there's sort of a play on words, and that is that those who, who fail to be circumcised end up being cut off from the land and from the people. So in other words, if there's not an initial cutting, there will in fact be a cutting off that is a sense of the curse of the covenant by not keeping it. You might remember this, this strange episode in Exodus chapter 4. Uh, Moses is on his way. He's got his wife Zipporah and his two sons. And they're on their way to Egypt. And he's going to be the, the great deliverer, right? And what happens? Angel of the Lord appears and starts to kill Moses. You remember this? Okay. Oh, read Exodus. Zipporah takes a flint knife and circumcises the two sons. Okay. And then tells Moses, you're a bridegroom of blood. Okay. People go, why in the world would, would this happen? Well, Moses himself, who was to be the leader of God's covenant people, had actually failed to administer the covenant to his own children. Okay. This is a terrible violation. And so circumcision is, is the sign of the covenant. It was administered to, uh, to the physical descendants, and by the way, those in the household, right? The servants in the household, which then marked them out nationally, physically, and that physical demarcation gave them, as it were, the right to inherit the land. Okay? That's the way it works. Circumcision was the physical sign that you belonged to, uh, to this nation, and that nation had the right to inherit the land. And so it was a physical sign, and that physical sign would belong to those who were the seed or the household of Abraham. But even in the Old Testament, so again, you could read that and you could think to yourself, just like the seed promise, you could limit it, narrow it, and make it very restrictive. So you could do the same thing with circumcision. But circumcision itself pointed to something beyond itself. Now there's, there's particular significance about the act of circumcision itself that we don't... Uh, necessarily have to go into. We can talk about it during the Q&I. Uh, Q, Q I. I don't know what that is, but the <laughs> Q&A time tonight. But here, here's the thing. is that In the Old Testament itself, the picture of circumcision wasn't just the idea of, of being marked out as the people of God. It was also a picture of a believing heart that knew God. It was a picture of a believing heart that obeyed God. And this, this isn't just a New Testament perspective 
on an Old Testament ritual. This was the Old Testament perspective on an Old Testament ritual. So, for instance, God tells the people in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16 that you are to circumcise uh, yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskin of your heart. That's spiritual, right? We have the same kind of thing in, in Jeremiah 4.4, this idea of, of a, a circumcision of the heart. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, it says... Uh, the ESV is, is better here. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, NAS says their ears are closed. Okay? The text says, and the ESV gets it right, their ears are uncircumcised. And they cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them, and they have no delight in it. So in the Old Testament, uh, God required actually a circumcision of the heart, not just of the foreskin. He required the ears to be circumcised, as, that is, that is opened to Him. An interesting passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, God says, or Moses says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. This is, this is what the physical rite of circumcision was pointing to all along, and in fact, if you look back at chapter 29 and verse 4, you'll see Israel's problem. Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. In other words, the reason that you don't know the Lord is because you haven't had your heart circumcised. So the physical sign was administered to the children of the flesh, right? So Physical sign administered to the children of the flesh as a national identity which would include their inheritance of the land. And although the sign itself had spiritual significance, the spiritual reality was frequently absent in ancient Israel. In other words, you had a nation where the vast majority of those in the nation um, physical seed, physical heirs to inherit the land, they had the physical mark in them, but they didn't have the spiritual reality. And that's why the Apostle Paul will say, not, it's not the children of the flesh who are the heirs, it's the children of the promise. For not all of Israel is Israel. In other words, Paul's thinking in terms of, of this big giant circle that is Israel. This is Israel according to the flesh. There's a smaller, perhaps much smaller circle within that that is the Israel of God circumcised of heart. All you had to do under the Old Covenant to be in this big circle was be circumcised in the flesh. In order to be in that 
inner circle, as it were, to know God and to love God is you had to be circumcised of heart. And that's what made you a true child of Abraham, a spiritual child of Abraham, a child of Abraham by faith. So, Christ's spiritual seed are those who have received true circumcision of the heart through the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to look at just a couple of texts with me. The first is Romans chapter 2. You, you know Paul's uh, ministry strategy, right? His ministry strategy was to go into a synagogue, preach the gospel, start a riot, and then leave. Okay? That was his approach. You question, why, does, why did Paul always find himself in so much trouble among his kinsmen according to the flesh? Well, it, it's things like this. Verse 25. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. In other words, circumcision obligates you to keep the whole law, and if you're circumcised and keep the whole law, then your circumcision profits you. Then he says, but if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now, by the way, this, this, this language, if you were a Jewish person, you would have divided the world up into two groups, right? You would have divided the world up into Jews and everybody else. Jews were called the circumcision. What were Gentiles called? The uncircumcision. So Paul says you could bear the mark of the, of, uh, the covenant with Abraham in your flesh, but if you're not walking with God and obeying God, your circumcision, your Jewishness, has become un-Jewishness. Or, to say it in an even more incendiary way, you good Jewish people who have the mark of the covenant in your flesh, you have, for all practical intents and purposes, you've become Gentiles. By the way, he makes the very same argument using Sarah and Hagar in Galatians 4, 21-31. Now notice he says, so if the uncircumcised man, ooh, uncircumcised, by the way, what would be another synonym if you were a Jewish person and saw somebody that was uncircumcised, that person would be considered unclean. unclean okay? Dirty Gentile dog. Okay? And so if the uncircumcised man, okay, so listen up, Jewish person, if that unclean, dirty Gentile dog actually does the requirements of the law, that is, he knows the Lord and he's walking with the Lord, I'd say by virtue of the new covenant, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? In other words, that very thing that makes you think he's unclean, his uncircumcision, his Gentile status, he's now going to be considered Jewish. When I preached this not too long ago, I got up and I said, I hope nobody turns this into a soundbite, but what Paul's saying is you have to be a Jew and you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. <laughs> but now Paul gets to define who is the Jew and what is circumcision, right? So then he says this, 
He who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are transgressor of the law? By the way, this is like one of those great reversals. The Jews were actually to be in judgment over the Gentile nations. Now, those who actually do the law, even though they're uncircumcised, stand in judgment over those who are circumcised but don't keep the law. Verse 28, here's, here's the kicker. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. And so here's, here's the, the glory. Paul could say it like this in, in Philippians 3. He says, beware the dogs. Again, notice the reversal language. From a Jewish perspective, who were the dogs? The Gentiles. Paul says, beware of the dogs. And then he calls them, New American Standard very delicately says, the false circumcision. Okay? It's more like the mutilation. So he's talking about Jewish teachers that had rejected Jesus and were trying to... So beware of dogs, beware of the mutilation. And then he says this, For we are the circumcision. New American Standard puts in, We are the true circumcision who worship God in the spirit of Jesus Christ. So here's, here's the glorious thing. Is that the seed of Abraham are all of those who are in union with Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, and they actually have received the circumcision of heart by the Spirit. And so the very sign of the covenant given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 is supra-fulfilled by the work of the Spirit, I would say, through the new covenant. Right? So, circumcision under the new covenant is now meaningless. Right? Because what it has stood for is now completely fulfilled. Right? So when you hear everlasting covenant, everlasting possession, you have to understand this is fairgrounds versus Disneyland. So when God does beyond what he says he's going to do, he is fulfilling his word. And so Paul could say it like this. Circumcision and uncircumcision means nothing. What matters is keeping the commandments of God. 1 Corinthians 7, 19. What matters is not the mark that's in your flesh. What, what matters is the mark of what's in your heart that's manifesting itself in your life. He says again, Galatians 5, 6. Circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters is faith working through love. In other words, it's the internal reality of the Spirit of God in your life that really matters. It's no longer a physical sign that you either have or don't have. It is the, the ministry and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Then he says, just for good measure, circumcision and uncircumcision don't mean anything. What matters, Galatians 6.15, is a new creation. How does that new creation take place? That new creation takes place by the power of the Holy Spirit operating through the new covenant.
So those who are in Christ are the seed of Abraham, become the children of Abraham, and receive a circumcised heart by the Holy Spirit. Now that brings us to, to the land. All right? And this has been, by the way, this would normally take me like six weeks. Okay? So you have to understand, I'm, I'm you know, talking fast. I'm hyper anyway, uh, when I preach at least. And uh, so I'm trying to like cram a bunch of stuff into. So, so here you have this, this promise. So God gives Abraham a promise that he's going to give him a land. Okay? The land itself is not very big. It's tiny. God promises to give it to him. During Abraham's lifetime, he never inherits what God promised. The only part of the promised land that Abraham actually owned was Sarah's grave. That's all. A plot. A burial plot. That's all that he owned. But as, as the descendants of Abraham multiplied and then entered into the promised land, you find out that in Joshua chapter 21, for instance... That, that in some level, at some degree, the land promise was fulfilled. They actually entered the land, the conquest, and then the settlement, and Joshua says, the Lord says, that not one good word of my promise fell to the ground, and they inherited the land. Okay? Now, did that inheritance seem as magnificent as it had sounded when it was given to Abraham? The answer is no. There were, think of it this way, here they are, conquest settlement, they're in the land, but there are, there are missing pieces and there's, there's gaps and there's holes and there's, there's things that just don't add up completely. So this promise was really good, so this is like I'm going to take you to the carnival in the fairgrounds and you end up, you know, going to uh, Kmart and riding the little piggy that bounces back and forth, all right? And so, so stop and consider, the patriarchs never received what was promised. Nor did the inheritance itself ever live up to its expectations. And inheriting the land was always tenuous because they still had enemies in the land that weren't driven out and the threat of exile was always a threat hanging over their head. Now God, I, I, would, say, I would say it like this, that God worked into the promise of the land a fundamental sense of disappointment. If you continually, if, if, if your obedience is the point of contingency as to whether you stay in the land, you have no security in the land. If you have enemies within and enemies without, you have no security in the land. When you have the threat of, of exile, which by the way happens, 
The kingdom splits. The northern kingdom is, uh, is, is exiled in the Assyrian invasion. The southern kingdom, Judah, is exiled in the Babylonian invasion. And so then there are these promises of restoration. And you could imagine being a Jewish person thinking of that land. So you had land. It was in your family from generation to generation. And you could think, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get that land. And so, so the Jews under Ezra and Nehemiah start to get, go back to the land. And the promises of restoration are beginning to be fulfilled. And so Nehemiah comes and builds the wall. And Zerubbabel comes and rebuilds the temple. But do you know what happens? When those who actually lived in Judah before the temple was destroyed, when they came back and they saw that second temple, they didn't say hip hip hooray. They wailed and mourned because the glory of Solomon's temple so far surpassed the glory of Zerubbabel's temple. Those who never saw the first temple, they were cheering and, and celebrating. And there was an inherent sense of disappointment even in the restoration. They would live under foreign domination during the period of restoration. With, with the exception of a little tiny period of time during the Maccabean revolt, the, the, the Jewish people would always be under the domination of a foreign power, and yet their hope was actually to have a Davidic king that ruled over them as a nation that was free and, and, and free to worship God and, as it were, bring the Gentiles in. Why was there a fundamental sense of disappointment? Because God prepared something better. You, you do, I, I hope that you understand this principle. God does not promise to you or to me our best life now. Amen. So much of this life is filled with disappointment. And there are times where we feel that 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 pull and that tension between the already and the not yet and we feel that tension of, of, of life as it were kind of never, never fully living up to what we know God intended us to be. Do you ever feel like that? Or do you just love your wife as Christ loved the church, lay your life down for her and live happily ever after? <laughs> God was doing something better. God was doing something better. And that better was that he was going to send the last Adam into this world who comes not only, not only to redeem fallen humanity, but he also comes to redeem the earth. The, the, the redemption that Christ brings is not just the redemption of those who are fallen in Adam, it is also the redemption of a world that was under the curse because of Adam. You see this, for instance, in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, Colossians 1, 19 to 20, and, and, and the best exposition of it, though, I think, is Romans 8, 18 to 25, where Paul talks about this present creation right now is actually groaning. It's groaning under the curse. 
And what it is waiting for, it is waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. In other words, with the consummation of our redemption comes, as it were, the recreation for a new heavens and a new earth. And that's what this present world is longing for. And so, when you get to the book of Revelation, and you see in Revelation 2.7, and then Revelation 22.14, that the new earth is, is like Eden, but only better. You begin to realize that what God has done is God took that original creation which was marred and, and, and virtually destroyed, corrupted because of Adam and because of the fallen race and He takes that world and He makes it a better world. Better than Canaan could have ever been. More secure than Canaan could have ever been. And better than Eden ever dreamed of. So then the question becomes, well what of Abraham? What of Abraham and the promises made to Abraham? We'll turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 8. By faith. Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise. <laughs> Abraham is an immigrant in his own land. As a, he says, uh, as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents. What's the point of dwelling in tents? No permanent home. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Notice this. By, by the way, at the end of verse 9, wouldn't that be a little disappointing? For he was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Do you know how I understand that? I understand that to be something like this. There's Calvin walking around those fairgrounds, and he's looking and he's thinking, this would be pretty fun, but I know my papa. And I bet he has something better than this. That's what sustained Abraham, was that he knew he had something better. And so it goes on and it says, verse 11, By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Now here's, here's the point. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises. But having seen them and welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they'd been thinking of that country from which they went out, that is Canaan, 
they would have had opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. By the way, it will be Paul himself who says in Romans 4.13, Abraham inherits the world. Not just a little piece of land no bigger than Rhode Island, but he inherits the world. And so the land promise is again supra-fulfilled through Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. So Abraham's high calling, along with his descendants, was not just to inherit Canaan, but to inherit the whole world. So the land promises made to Abraham and his seed are ultimately and eternally, by the way, fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth wherein righteousness dwells forever. And so I would say this is, this is the fundamental a dual nature of the covenant with Abraham. It is both physical and it is spiritual. It is both national and it is typological. And so what we have in the covenant made with Abraham is the gospel promise is further revealed in the Abrahamic covenant. And what God promises Abraham in the covenant is fulfilled beyond all measure in Jesus Christ. Why? Because God is in the business of doing exceedingly, abundantly, above all we could ask or think. We're about to take the Lord's Supper. And we live in a world that is passing away. We live in a world in which the true light is already shining, but the darkness is still here. We live in a light and in a world where there is sin not only without but within. We live in a world where we battle between the flesh and the spirit. We live in a world where, where we get old, we get sick. We live in a world where brothers and sisters who are serving Christ lay down their lives because people hate the gospel. We live in a world which is filled with disappointment. And at times we live in a world that seems absolutely hopeless. We ask ourselves, when in the world is this, is this sin and wickedness and opposition to God ever going to cease? Well, the bread and the cup is the down payment that it's going to cease. The bread and the cup is the reminder to us that Jesus Christ Himself, in His life and in His death, actually laid the very foundation, not only for the forgiveness of our sins and the imputation of righteousness, but He laid the very foundations of a life forever with Him and the Father and the Holy Spirit in a new heaven and new earth where there will be no more night. And so the disappointments that are woven into this life are simply those that God designs to prime our hope for something better. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the promises you made to Abraham and through Christ to us. We pray even now that as we get ready to take the supper, that you would prepare our hearts and fill us with all hope and believing. In Jesus' name.